0: Hello and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Emeritus Professor William Clune. Professor Clune's research is focused on, among other areas, school finance, school law, special education, and systemic educational policy. Today, Professor Kloon is here to discuss his new book, Legal Realism into Law in Action, Innovative Law Courses at UW-Madison, published by Quid Pro Books in December of 2021. The book compiles articles and interviews focusing on four groundbreaking classes conceived and taught at the University of Wisconsin Law School and the faculty responsible for both their creation and their ongoing legacy. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor Kloon.
1: Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's uh, great to be here as an emeritus and uh, it's very exciting to see these uh, Law in Action podcasts take place. I think that's a very good innovation for the law school and um, a different and effective way to get the word out.
0: Well, thank you. I've had a great time talking with all the different professors, and I've learned a lot reading all these different articles and books here. I hope people have learned a lot listening to them as well. To dive in, we usually start our podcast by asking our guests' background, specifically their research and scholarly writing interests, what led you to researching UW law classes and legal education.
1: So the law and action aspect was uh, natural for me. I was part of a Russell Sage program in law and social science in both law in the law school and the graduate school in sociology at Northwestern. In my third year of law school, we did a major study of school finance, myself along with another classmate and a professor, which led to a book that had a national impact. Wisconsin Law School was a natural destination for a law and action type person, and the hiring faculty at that time were receptive to my work and my background. Then, while on the faculty, I became interested in and involved with critical legal studies. CLS follows legal realism in deconstructing policy bias in judicial cases and reasoning and documenting repressive historical trends what Bob Gordon then on our faculty at the time called uh, critical or at my time uh, later on called critical legal histories. (laughs) Oddly enough, um, Willard Hurst was a kind of predecessor of critical legal history because he explained the role of property and contract in the economy, along with restraints on exercise of those rights in a realistic and understandable way For example, the lumber industry in Wisconsin. He did not have rose-colored glasses. Um, I would also say I had a lingering puzzlement about law school courses, especially in the first year, and this clicked with legal realism. There were all these rules, but I couldn't figure out what they were for or what significance they had out there in the world. They were kind of floating up there in the air. If you um, read the interview with Stuart McCauley and Bill Whitford in the book, you'll understand the real world of contracts much better. Um, second and third year courses were easier to understand because the law uh, studied by them was created with a purpose in mind. Courses like antitrust, securities, regulation, and so forth.
0: Right, the first year of law classes, you're kind of just throwing the deep end of very esoteric topics like Contracts—that's a very vague term for people to understand—and I agree. The interview with Stuart and with Bill really sheds a light on why it's taught very differently here, and we'll get to that in a little while, though. But yeah, it's nice to have someone that wrote a book about law and action on our law and action podcast. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, in the preface to your book, you discuss legal realism and law and action. So before we get to that other content, let's explain these two terms a little in a little bit more detail and why they're important to legal
1: education. Sure, Um, legal realism was a movement of law professors in the 1920s who criticized the emphasis in law school on appellate cases and legal logic. They wanted to know about how law was actually practiced and its impact on people. Uh, Willard Hurst himself complained about his courses at Harvard Law School, although he did extremely well in them as resembling Euclidean geometry. Um, This quest of the realist was the beginning of law and action. How is law experienced at the ground level, and what practical impact does it have? That beginning with the realist was greatly expanded at Wisconsin during the formative period that uh, the book looks at, and then led to empirical research and courses in other departments as well as time went on.
0: I love that comparison to Euclidean geometry, and I feared it when I first looked at law schools, like, is this what it's gonna be? And it turned out not to be so because of the professors that I had. Uh, So what inspired you to focus on these four particular courses at UW Law?
1: Um, The immediate stimulus was a law school event uh, honoring the late great Herman Goldstein. You couldn't study Goldstein without considering Frank Remington because they worked together on the monumental American Bar Foundation study of the exercise of discretion in criminal law from investigation all the way through to sentencing and parole. The idea of discretion everywhere was revolutionary at that time. And then equally important for the law school at that time was the pivotal influence of Willard Hurst and the parallel revolution of his course in legal history and legal process. The last thread and equally innovative was contracts law, contracts law in action, pioneered by Stuart McCauley and Bill Whitford, because contracts is such a key course in the first year curriculum. Many of the most influential legal realists were contracts teachers and scholars, notably Carl Llewellyn. And looking backward, all of these courses were taught at Wisconsin from that early time to the present day. So it is a lasting formative tradition.
0: I just have to reemphasize the great part that you mentioned for Herman Goldstein, Professor Herman Goldstein. I was lucky enough to work with him pretty closely in a couple of different aspects of getting his book published back out there. And he was a gentleman and a scholar, no no other way to put it. So it's just really great to work with him. And it was really great to see his class, along with Professor Remington's had a spotlight shine on it here. So thanks he, for was,
1: he was a special person. He really was.
0: So we kind of have danced around this a little bit. What what are those four courses you focus on and when were they developed?
1: So here they are by name, and I say they were developed from 1950 to 1970 and in different editions at different times, but that's a good time period. And it was Legal History by Willard Hurst, Criminal Justice Administration by Frank Remington, Herman Goldstein, and colleagues, the Wisconsin Contracts Course by Stuart McCauley, Bill Whitford, and colleagues, and Legal Process by Willard Hurst, Lloyd Garrison, Carl Auerbach, and colleagues. Willard Hurst's book on, uh, which his first book was called Law and Society, and he conceived of it as both a, a book, in legal history and legal process. And so uh, this last one that I mentioned, legal process, was the updated legal process version of that uh, switch hitter, you could say. And then all four courses continued at Wisconsin or nationally from that early time to the present.
0: Let's dive into each one of these individually to really get a good sense for them. Uh, So let's start with Willard Hurst. How did Hearst and the legal history course he created affect legal education?
1: Well, it's hard to overstate Hearst's influence at Wisconsin and nationally. He virtually invented the modern field of legal history and was and was one of the early pioneers of a legal process course along with Hart and Sachs. He had a powerful role in obtaining funding for others on the faculty. He had a prodigious publication record, almost unbelievable when you look at it. Uh, He studied the rise and fall of the lumber industry in Wisconsin, along with the destruction of the northern forest. He turned down offers from Harvard and Yale, as did Remington at Harvard. His book, Law and the Conditions of Freedom, was a a bestseller and inspired others to pursue legal history as a field.
0: We also at the Law Library here are in the process of migrating a Hearst collection that we have digitally created to our repository where we have a lot of his lectures and some of his correspondence digitized and a lot of his publications in one spot. And it is, as you said, a prodigious collection to review because he was just an amazing writer that really changed the outlook of legal history. Uh, Also, we have his typewriter, it's fun to see.
1: Anyone who was around Willard knew of this typewriter because he would sit in his office with natural light only. He never turned on the lights. And you would hear him click clacking away at a a rapid pace. I think that goes all the way back to when he did his uh, different clerkships. And we all in the faculty would get concise little reviews and comments on the work we were doing, always very helpful, typed out on that typewriter. So that's a great artifact that you have.
0: Well, however he worked in natural light or otherwise, it worked very well, to say the least, to give a little bit of understatement here. Well, thank you for that one. Let's turn next to Professor Herman Goldstein and Professor Frank Remington's Criminal Justice Administration course. What impact did this course have on legal education?
1: Well, again, it's hard to overstate the influence. The courses grew out, as I said, of this enormous research study by the American Bar Foundation, which looked at the exercise of of discretion from the earliest encounters of people with the legal system straight through to the end of the process. Um, Professors from other law schools, Yale among them, took part in study groups held at Wisconsin and went home and wrote tenure articles. Walter Dickey told me that he attended one of those, and it was the uh, probably the greatest intellectual experience of his life. And um, that's something coming from Walter. Um, the Criminal Procedure Course created by Remington is still taught today at Wisconsin by Professors Keith Findley and Cecilia Klingley. And I consider that to be the jewel of the first year curriculum, perhaps um, because I'm biased, but I, I do think very, very highly of it. Um, Goldstein wrote books on policing in a free society and problem-oriented policing. He came to have enormous national and international influence and received a very distinguished international prize, sometimes called the Nobel prize in his field, although it wasn't a Nobel prize. Technically, I told him, well, it's the greatest prize in your field. So I got to interview him not too long before he died, and that'll be a lasting memory as well. So, and Professor Michael Scott was a protege of Goldstein who taught his courses at Wisconsin and now heads an amazing center on problem-oriented policy at Arizona State. Scott has an article in the book, which is really well worth uh, reading about Goldstein's work and his relevance to policing issues today.
0: We also hold here at the Law Library right below Willard Hearst typewriter, a partial collection of the American Bar Foundation papers that Herman and Frank Remington worked on, and a complete collection is the Wisconsin Historical Society right across the hill here. So if anyone's ever interested in reviewing these papers, they are available to be reviewed. And it's just an amazing, massive collection, as Professor Kuhn said, to show from the street level riding in the police car to how these people were first interacted with with the discretion, all the way up to sentencing. It's an amazing, amazing collection.
1: When I went to interview uh, Herman at his apartment. He said, Bill, I'm so excited. I just got a call from this researcher at Harvard who was interested in the American Bar Foundation study and wanted to know some sources and things to read. And he said, I almost felt sorry for having to dig through all of it uh, again. But uh, so it just kind of, she was uh, either a young professor or a graduate student, I can't remember, so that all those years later, it still had vitality. So maybe she went and looked in your library sources.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, we worked with her actually. And she. we oh. haven't had her here yet because of COVID, but we still are working with her to get her to see them eventually. Oh, really?
1: Okay, mm-hmm. good.
0: Yep, it's still being worked on. I wish she had been here, but COVID interrupted travel plans, unfortunately. But yeah. it will happen. <laughs> okay, let's turn to the third course that we just that you discuss in your book. And that's the Wisconsin Contracts Class that was largely created by Stuart McCauley and Bill Whitford, how was it different than previous contracts classes?
1: Well, I think the departure of this course from traditional contracts courses was provo- profound. Um, instead of teaching appellate cases about such topics as contract formation, offer and acceptance, this course focused on the other end of the spectrum, contract remedies, which determine whether recovery is possible. Uh, and on the multiple obstacles in the way of recovery of damages. It also featured the multiple conflicting doctrines that made, make prediction of results difficult. I would say, interestingly, including after an appellate case where one side wins, they have to go back down to the trial court and face arguments that weren't made before but, but are relevant to the outcome in the, in the new trial. And it brought attention to how most contracts are made and enforced. Um, On the one hand, relational contracts, which is a specialty of Professor McCauley and something he's really internationally famous for, they're based on trust and disputes are resolved informally outside of courts. And this type of contract is extremely common in the real world, for example, long-run supply contracts. And so, on the other hand, a great portion of contracts are made between parties of vastly different power, with one party dictating all the terms and remedies. You just click agree, and you've given your consent. That's the so-called meeting of the minds right there. Click agree, minds are met.
0: We had I was lucky enough to have Stuart on the Law in Action podcast last December, And it was very interesting to hear about his stories developing the course and about the publication of his selected writing as well. And so I'm going to plug in our previous pod to say, go and check that out. It's really wonderful to talk with Stuart anytime. And finally, we return back to Willard Hearst and the legal process course that he created. How did this class change legal education?
1: This was with Lloyd Garrison and Carl Auerbach. It was an updated version of Hearst's original book, which I said was Law and Society. And it was Hearst, Auerbach, Garrison, and Sam Merman who authored this updated version and taught the course. Uh, I think it was a required first-year course for a while. I think Walter Dickey took it while it was a required course, you know, as a student. So we have a generational transfer here through the ages. Um, I just mentioned Sam Merman was a colleague when I first joined the law school and always a thoughtful, uh, warm, and friendly person. He's passed now. The late Carl Auerbach, was another of several prominent New Dealers who were on the faculty at that time and took part in these innovations. Jake Boischer is another one that I'm not getting a chance to talk to, but is in my article in the book. And so Auerbach later became Dean of the Minnesota Law School and he became known for his normative vision of progressive social democracy. I thought I would, mention a quote. He said that as a result of the New Deal, quote, a tolerable measure of social justice and individual freedom has been achieved in our society as a result, not of the pursuit of a vision of an ideal economic system, but of political struggle, which individuals and groups have waged according to the rules of democracy to satisfy their claims. Yes, end quote. Uh, so, this enthusiastic defense of progressive legislation and democracy, taken from the legal process book, is a good example of the normative uh, perspective on historical trends typical of legal realism in the tradition of Pound's sociological jurisprudence. Pound maintained that the law should be reformed when it was out of step with social needs and justice.
0: Right. It kind of draws a line about how the law develops through time to kind of adhere to what is the demands of the time from society.
1: Right. And with that progressive slant, because um, when I got here, there were many new dealers on the faculty and I did not realize that they were actually. Nate Feinsinger and uh, Hearst himself worked for the Navy on the law of treason. And by the way, then in typical fashion, he published three articles in Harvard Law Review and a book on the law of treason. And Jake Boisher and Sam, Sam Merman and, and others. And so um, her, her study of uh, workers' compensation really was a study of how uh, the common law was not adequate to meet the um, the accidents caused by the industrial age. It had all sorts of, it was difficult to bring suits and there were odd defenses and things like that. And so... A workers' comp law was passed, along with a compensation scheme and funding and regulation of workplace safety. That was an innovation at the state of Wisconsin. He had this idea that some people would call it functionalism, I guess, and also progressivism, that um, there was a need that had to be met. It was a crying social need. You know, it led also to legal, the idea of it, it required administrative law rather than courts. And that was another big step. Uh, from common law and uh, the 19th century to late 19th century and the 20th century. Uh, And and then in the New Deal, there were many um, agencies and regulatory regimes. Right. It
0: kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of the administrative state that is still functioning today in some areas, at
1: least. Oh, absolutely. It's functioning all over the place. You know, it's contested up and down in in every hearing and every new new amendment that's proposed and the Supreme Court kind of backtracking on what is in the discretion of administrative agencies, but it's still there and uh, chugging away.
0: But another great element of this book are the interviews that you conducted and collected, which you've been discussing and alluding to throughout our discussion so far. What were some of your favorite moments from these interviews?
1: I I say in the book that I first hesitated whether to include the interviews. Um, Kind of, you know, we had articles and uh, I thought, well, that's good scholarly stuff. And what am I going to throw these uh, interviews in? They're kind of chatty and um, they wander around a bit. But it was really a delight to do all of them. Every single one of them, I learned something, even about areas that, I already knew pretty well I you know I got a pretty deep familiarity of for someone who wasn't in the field of problem-oriented policing and uh, goldstein and and the other interviews um, uh, and the interviews of Kling, klingley and and uh, findlay were very informative about that um the interviews, with Dirk Hartog, his paper and his interview on legal history and the small uh, dispute between Lawrence Friedman and Dirk, um, I probably put the most time on email with Dirk Hartog going back and forth on conceptions of what legal history is. And um, I learned a tremendous amount. There, There is a kind of a disciplinary... A gap to be bridged because historians look at things in a different way and one of the things that's discussed in his paper is uh, not only this how the subject matter changed from law and the economy which Hearst did but to what he calls subaltern populations Native Americans uh, African Americans so on colonialism um, Atlantic studies and all that kind of stuff and um but also, I don't know conceptions of history itself and how, where, what is legal history just a way of humanizing law? Does it, does it stand on its own? And and Hartog eventually comes up with the idea that it's an accompaniment, but which I think he, by which I think he meant um, running on parallel tracks next to the law or something. That would be a crude way of putting it. But uh, it's a real workout. And Hurst was his mentor when he was on the faculty here a very warm host for him. And then then he w- went to Princeton in the history department, and also uh, Bob Gordon, who was d- doing legal history, left for Yale and uh, Stanford. And the, the book kind of has a little bit of a split in the ranks there between Hirstean-style 19th century economic history and the new history that was more about... Um, Uh, things like slavery and colonialism. And I would say Mark Tushnet, who wrote his book on the law of slavery, was a part of that whole shift to the left. And it's kind of like in 1960, where everything changed, the focus of people's attention changed too. And that was reflected in legal history. So um, those uh, interviews were fascinating to me. And um, then Macaulay and Whitford, I... I kind of understood maybe hmm, Bill Whitford is a close friend of mine, and we I frequently do Zooms with uh, Macaulay and Whitford. And um, so I, w- I was able to, even before doing that interview, understand a lot of things. Uh, but uh, um, I kind of only understood maybe 25% of the things they did in that course and why. And uh, there were things that I had... Um, hanging in my mind all the way from my own course in contracts in law school that uh, they answered and I kind of understood for the first time and uh, like what the, the basic economic purpose of uh, contracts is, which is uh, protecting expectations. And that's included in the interviews. So um, so anyway, long way round of saying, I think the interviews really add something important and distinctive to the articles. I'll just mention, since people might as well know, there's a, a foreword by Lawrence Friedman, which remembers his days at Wisconsin and uh, his days. He wrote uh, many editions of a history of American law and um, also a law and sociology book with Stuart McCauley. And they were close colleagues, but he, um, he kind of takes a little exception to uh, Dirk Hartog's view about um, about Hearst that maybe he was a little bit rigid in not accepting these new historical movements uh, of the '60s and things like that. I wouldn't want to overdo the disagreement, but it, it makes I think it spices the book a little bit to say to kind of identify these different points of view.
0: But it adds more nuance and it allows you to shed light from different angles on Professor Hearst's work. And it sounds like uh, anyone could learn from this. Like if you as an emeritus law school professor and sociology professor can learn different aspects of uh, contract law from the interview, a first year law student or someone that's been in law for 40, 50 years could also learn something by reading these insights.
1: I hope that some incoming law students read it. Um, It might be, you mentioned before, when you come into law school, you're thrown into the deep end and you are doing things and wondering, what they're going to amount to and exactly what you're learning. And so it's kind of like a deep end with um, blindfolds on instead of swimming goggles. And that's common experience for all those law students, I think. But I think if they breeze through that, at least um, they'd get some interesting thoughts and ideas for, for example, for the contracts courses and other courses.
0: Let me go back. You had mentioned the introduction by Lawrence, Professor Lawrence Friedman. I'd like to read an excerpt from that, if I may. When I read the interview with Cecilia Klingel and Keith Finley in this book, I couldn't help thinking what a wonderful course they teach, what a wonderful experience for the students. Do they realize how different this course is, how rich in experiential learning? This really uh, affected me because I happen to have both professors Klingel and Finley for these two courses when I was in law school, and I learned a lot from both of them. Do you see more law and action or experiential learning elements being integrated into other law school classes?
1: On the one hand, many law schools, so when we I suppose we could talk about law school at Wisconsin or law school everywhere, but in many law schools, uh, they still teach traditional bar review-oriented doctrinal courses, which probably haven't changed much in a 100 years. I don't know. I guess we, you you graduated from Wisconsin, so you didn't have to take a bar, a bar review course.
0: Yes, with great relief to me.
1: The one, the bar review <laughs> course I took in Illinois was... I I couldn't, you know that it it was, it felt like you know it was so archaic. It was almost it had spider webs on it, but anyway, um, but uh, so there's it's a lot of law schools are very traditional. A lot of courses are very traditional, but on the other hand, there's been enormous growth in clinical education since I graduated from law school. It was barely beginning, and now. Uh, Both at, you know, I think at Wisconsin, it's been a very strong part, wonderful part of the curriculum and elsewhere. uh, Wealthy law schools teach courses in legal history and law and economics. Um, I say wealthy law schools because you're having to hire special faculty to teach these courses and offer students who are, you know, want to take them. And so I think it's just a fact that they're in the so-called elite law schools. Also, I would add the policy-oriented courses in the second and third year curriculum uh, built around legislation and administrative rules. We talked about that before. Um, And these have a strong affinity for law and action. And I'm talking about bankruptcy, for example, especially if they are taught in a policy framework. I remember uh, Elizabeth Warren, this is a story that Oh, no, this was in, um, I think Elizabeth Warren has a tribute to Bill Whitford actually somewhere that I don't know if you have that you could pick up on your for your library archives. And um, I think in that is where she talks about when she first started teaching bankruptcy, she would take each section and say what problem was Congress trying to solve here? Uh, What's the nature of the problem? how successfully does the statute and its application meet the problem? And so that that's a, a kind of law and action perspective, you know, on a course, which was an area of law, uh, bankruptcy code was actually enacted after the new deal. And um, that, that had a purpose. And so, and of course, it's always been contested. So the reason you can't get, um, a discharge of student loans is because of the influence of uh, banks, and so it's uh, it's all of these areas of law have uh, are a quilt comprised of different opposing forces knitting them, so to speak. And um, but it it very much makes sense from a law and action point of view, and can be taught that way. I think income tax can be taught very much with a strong policy framework. And then, I mean, I would add lastly that quite a few law schools offer inter- interdisciplinary courses in areas such as bioethics um, and intellectual property is another one. I know when as chairman of admissions, I used to regret, this is really inside admissions baseball, law school ranks are based on grade point and LSAT scores. Sometimes we would get applicants with uh, extremely good scientific degrees had lower averages because uh, science gives lower averages than the humanities. And uh, maybe they didn't have an astronomical LSAT, but they would have been a perfect addition for many of the kind of interdisciplinary fields where law touches areas involving science are, are kind of all over the place in the modern world. I wish we could have fit more of them, you know, and more, admitted more of them, we did make an effort as, as many as possible. So didn't think I would get off on admissions, but I spent a lot of time, actually right down the hall from you, so.
0: Yeah, and I think they have been admitting more science, people with science backgrounds lately, at least when I'm speaking with students now, that I see a lot more engineering or biology or what have you, which I think is great, because as you said, like bioethics, that's an important and growing field that people with a scientific background with legal expertise can really affect. And law and action plays a huge role there.
1: Yeah, and we do have inter, inter, uh, uh, joint degrees and programs. I mean, business always seemed to me like another obvious one. You know, I was a literature major, and one thing I one thing I had a hard time understanding was the way business fit into the business courses. And that's kind of a legendary <laughs> problem for a lot of people in law school. All of these things are good avenues to pursue, and they, they probably are being pursued Not so visibly in the headlines, but, you know, quietly in small developments.
0: Right. Here and there, it's being developed and addressed. I think you're right. Uh, How else do you see law school curriculums changing the future, if at all?
1: Lawrence Friedman mentions that it's been it's not been typical for law and sociology, law, law and social science, law and political science to work its way into law school courses and into research although it does occur, and there's uh, tremendous amounts of law-related research in other departments. I, I did most of my work in my life, in education had an office over in the Wisconsin Center for Education Research, and I got fairly deeply into a lot of education research, and a lot of it's uh, uh, very empirical based on data, and, um, for example, the the what works in education, and... Um, my field was implementation, what happens, you start something at the top, what happens when you get to the bottom, and um, the bottom sometimes controls the top and all that, so in, you know, there's the La Follette Institute of Political Science, Sociology, all kinds of people are studying law, and Malcolm Fuley in his article mentions that was a result of um, this innovation in those four courses, because uh, even at that time, Hurst was working with uh, people in other departments, and and uh, Goldstein was uh, n- not a, a, uh, a lawyer, and they had and some of the people on the American Bar Foundation who were teaching uh, Newman, for example, it was uh, not a lawyer. So that, it began then, and I think a recent interesting example is Thomas Mitchell's work on longstanding doctrines that have um, deprived black and other disadvantaged American families of their property and real estate wealth and he received a MacArthur fellowship for this and that that um, research is taught in some first-year property courses so property was an area that was just very conceptual when I was in law school and that's pretty much of a law in action thing and as you know Mitchell was a longtime faculty member here and he's now at Texas a and Law School So again, there's things going on, but on the other hand, uh, I think the doctrinal method is still dominant. Wisconsin is still a bit of an outlier, so it's a mixed bag.
0: What do you most hope readers take away from your book?
1: Well, I would say obviously a wider understanding of the distinct achievements of the Wisconsin Law School over many, many decades. And then also the long gradual evolution of law and action. Going back more than 100 years, I think that's a good capstone for it.
0: I agree, and I think people are going to get that in spades from this book. I'm, I, I've really enjoyed what I've read so far. We'll link to Professor Kloon's scholarship on our podcast page. Uh, thank you very much for joining the podcast today, Professor Kloon.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a very good experience. I think I hope um, people enjoy it and um, learn something from it.
0: I'm certain they will. We've been discussing Professor Kloon's recently published book, Legal Realism to Law and Action, Innovative Law Courses at UW-Madison, published by Quid Pro Books in December of 2021. The SSRN link and a link to purchase the book are both on the podcast page. For a complete listing of Professor Kloon's work, visit the University of Wisconsin Law School Repository. This link can be found along with this podcast at wilawandaction.law.wic.edu. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to check out our previous podcast where we discuss a wide range of legal topics and scholarship, ranging from tribal law to COVID vaccinations to legal entrepreneurship. You can subscribe via the Apple iTunes Store or listen to our full archive at wiLawInAction.law/wisc.edu. Happy New Year and happy researching.